maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks, and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Welcome to the Cadogan Hall and to tonight's debate, which is... Beware the dragon. Africa should not look to China. We've got a distinguished panel who I shall introduce one by one as they go up and speak. This is a topic which has been something which has been exercising people here, I would say, for the last five years or so. But it's ever more important because with the European and American economies flatlining, and China steaming ahead, and African economies also steaming ahead. The world is changing. And trade between Africa and China has now reached $100 billion a year. And I read the other day uh, that the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Johnny Carson, uh, said at some point last year that this was a big problem because China was operating in Africa with no morals. Unlike everybody else operating in Africa whose morals, I'm sure, are completely scrupulous and always have been. But that does go to the heart of the debate, doesn't it? Is China a model which has lifted hundreds of millions of its own people out of poverty and a guide and a benign influence, or is China reinforcing corruption and exploitation? I think that will be the heart of our debate tonight. Now, you will have been polled as you came in, whether you are for or against the motion, and you should also have these voting cards. 
And so when the uh, main speeches have finished and you've had the chance to ask a few questions yourself, uh, people will be coming around with ballot boxes. So we would ask you to tear the slip in half and vote for or against as you wish. If you really can't make your mind up, then you put a don't know, which is the whole slip. But I hope that our panellists tonight will be able to sway you one way or another. What's going to happen is everybody's going to get up and make their speech for about 10 minutes, but I'm going to ask each of the panellists to stay there after finishing the speech, and the opposing team will have some quick-fire questions for them. Our first speaker is George Aite. He's an economist from Ghana. He is... Uh, founded the Free Africa Foundation in Washington, which is where he lives. He's a renowned writer on African issues. And I don't know if he's a member of the cheetah generation himself, but he has written about the cheetah generation, young Africans who favor the free market and democracy and who he hopes are going to oust what he calls the hippo generation of sclerotic and corrupt old leaders. George. Um, uh, uh, Lindsay, thank you very much for the uh, wonderful introduction, and also uh, thank the. Uh, I'd like to thank the Intelligence Squared uh, for uh, putting together this important debate and for inviting me here. And I also would like to thank you for finding some time to come and listen to us. Uh, and now, this topic is very important. It is important for Africans. And the reason why it is important for Africans is because the post-colonial story about Africa is not pretty. As you all are aware, Africa is the continent which has been ravaged by one crisis after another. I mean, if you look at the number of democracies in Africa, now in 1990, there were only four democracies in Africa. Today, after 21 years of reform, the number of uh, democracies in Africa is only 15, 15 out of the 54 African countries, meaning that the vast majority of the African people still live under tyranny. Now, if you look at the economic success stories, there has been some progress, but progress has been marginal. There are only 10 African countries which can be called economic success stories. And fewer than 10 have a free and independent media. Now, many states in Africa have collapsed, and there are many more that are on the verge of collapsing. It shouldn't be that way, because Africa is a continent which is rich in mineral resources. But the mineral wealth of Africa has not been utilized to lift its people out of poverty. Now, why did things go so wrong in Africa? The reason why things went so wrong in Africa is because the leadership after independence rejected Africa's own culture and institutions and went abroad and copied all sorts of foreign systems and ideas and paraphernalia to impose upon the African people. Now, this is what makes Africans very angry, very angry. Now, this is what the leadership said. The former Soviet Union is a one-party socialist state. So too must we in Africa. 
So we had a proliferation of uh, one-party socialist states in Africa. New York has skyscrapers. So too must we in Africa, in the middle of nowhere. Rome has a basilica. So we built one in Yamasukro, Ivory Coast. France once had an emperor. So Bukasa of the Central African Republic spent $25 million to crown himself emperor. I can go on. The list of these unimaginative apings is just horrendous. The continent is littered with the putrid carcasses of failed imported systems. Now African leaders are building Confucius Institutes in Africa. So far, 25 Confucius Institutes have been built in Africa. And we have been told to learn Mandarin. Enough! The solutions to Africa's problems lie in Africa itself. It doesn't lie along the corridors of the World Bank. It doesn't lie in the inner sanctum of the Chinese Presidium. Nor does it lie in the sand dunes of Mars. Lies right there in Africa. Now, let me give you an example. Total foreign aid to Africa from all sources amounts to $30 billion a year. That's what comes into Africa as foreign aid. But Africa's begging bowl leaks. It leaks horribly. What are the leakages? Corruption alone costs Africa $148 billion a year. Corruption. I mean, you cut that in half, and that will give you more than enough money. Aid, that comes in. Capital flight out of Africa, $80 billion. Food imports, $20 billion. Back in the 1960s, Africa fed itself, not only fed itself, but also exported food. Not anymore today. Military expenditures, $20 billion a year. What are the military in Africa for? Do the soldiers protect the people? Now, if you add up all these leakages, they come up to $268 billion a year. Compare that to the $30 billion that comes in in foreign aid. In the late 1980s, the West saw that something had gone wrong. So the West started adding conditionalities to its aid. Now, guess what African leaders did? They took the aid money and did the Babangida boogie. One step forward, three steps back, a flip and a sidekick to land on the fat Swiss bank account. Much ado about nothing. After a decade of agrobatics, the reform process in Africa has stalled. Now, about the same time, China was growing very, very rapidly. And I'd like to make a distinction between my remarks here, because when I talk about China, I'm talking about the communist government. I'm not talking about the Chinese people. China was growing very, very rapidly, and it needed resources. And Africa had the resources. So China saw an opportunity. Who wouldn't? I don't blame them for it. They saw an opportunity. So they came to Africa and started to woo African leaders with euphonious verbiage and diplomatic platitudes. They started telling African leaders that, well, China is not a colonial power, conveniently forgetting about Tibet. They told African leaders that, well, we are here to trade on equal terms. 
And they declared 2006 as the year of Africa. They held a conference in Beijing. And African leaders took the bait, miffed that uh, the West was imposing conditionalities on aid, and also believing in the fallacious notions that the enemy of my enemy must be my friend. 40 African leaders struck to Chinese and threw their, themselves at the hand of China, at the feet of China, signing deals. A blizzard of deals were signed for oil, for bauxite, for timber in Nigeria, Angola, Guinea, Mozambique, Gabon, so many countries. Now, <clears throat> the deals, of course, Africa needed, uh, needed to sell its resources. And trade with, uh, Africa's trade with China has blossomed, it's grown from 10 billion in 2000 to more than 100 billion today. And it has also propelled Africa's economic growth rate to 5.8% in 2008, which is good. Okay. And nobody is questioning that. In addition, the Chinese have been investing in infrastructure, which Africa desperately needs, because the Africa's infra infrastructure has crumbled because of neglect and also wars. The World Bank estimates that Africa needs something like 93 billion annually in investments in infrastructure. So the Chinese investments here are welcome. Nobody is questioning that. But the tactics of the Chinese in Africa are objectionable and unwholesome. Number one, the deals which are being signed are being signed on barter terms. In other words, China in Nigeria, for example, the China is going to fix Nigeria's dilapidated railway for five billion. And in return of that, China will have access to four oil plots. Okay? The barter deals are simply in China's favor. In other words, they, they're so opaque. China brings in all the technicians, all the workers, and so forth. That is what is wrong with that particular type of barter system. Now, secondly, the deals have been signed in secrecy and through bribery and also by uh, kickbacks. In, uh, in Namibia, for example, the Chinese company New Tech has been uh, indicted for, kicking, uh, for, bribe, for giving kickbacks to uh, a, a Namibian company. And China has also been securing the, uh, the deals by building presidential palaces in Sudan, in Zimbabwe, and also by building sports stadiums in uh, Guinea and also in Congo. Now, the third, thing about, the third thing about these deals is that there is no uh, local input in determining whether the deals are good for Africa or not good for Africa. And fourthly, the deals are going to impede economic development and also economic reform in Africa and democratic reform in Africa. Now, the West imposed conditions on its aid. China comes in and says, we're not going to impose any conditions on, you, on, you, on, on, AT, uh, on, on aid to African countries. Now, what that does is that it gives the African leaders very little incentive to reform their abominable economic and political systems. Now, fifthly, Chinese workers have also been going into the informal and the traditional sectors which have been reserved for Africans.
They're not supposed to. But last August, Ghana government arrested foreign miners, uh, foreign, uh, foreign nationals in the mining sector, and many of them were Chinese workers in the artisanal mining. If you go to Arusha market or the, uh, the market in Kampala, the Chinese you know, traders are also there to the resentment of the traders who work in that particular market. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that China should not trade with Africa. China is welcome to do business in Africa, but the business has to be transparent and also has to be above board. There is now growing objections to Chinese forests into Africa. Former South African uh, 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 President Thabo Mbeki describes China's forests into Africa as a new form of colonialism. Now, as a matter of fact, some African commentaries are also dismissing that as chopsticks mercantilism. Now, China is welcome to do business in Africa with the people in Africa. Otherwise, it will meet its own peril. In Libya, for example, China invested something like $18 billion in infrastructure investments in Libya. When Gaddafi, when the revolution started, China didn't want to give the United Nations the authorization to impose a no-fly zone. And guess what happened? After Mugabe was, after Muammar Gaddafi was, was killed, China had to pull out of Libya 22,000 workers. This should not be the case in other African countries. And I believe that if we put enough pressure on China, China will be able to clean up its act. Otherwise, Africa should not look towards China. The solutions that Africa needs can be found in Africa itself. Thank you very much. Thank you, Right, I'm asking George not to move to say exactly where he is because the opposing team, Stephen and Deborah, who I haven't introduced yet, but I will later, um, are going to grill him for about three minutes. Deborah, Stephen, who would like to start? He's choking already, so you haven't even started asking a difficult question yet. George, don't you think you've delivered to the audience a spectacular piece of generalized rhetoric with emphasis on the word generalized. When you talk about Africa, that's 54 different countries, each one of whom have got very, very different problems, each one of whom deals with the Chinese in a very, very different way. And the Chinese are well advised to deal with each one of those in a very, very different way. So you didn't really differentiate the 54 different foreign policies that exist between Africa and China. You didn't can, really can George just come back on that because I want to make this quite quick fire. So, terrible generalizations. Well, <clears throat> the tactics are so common, and that is number one, the terms of trade between African countries and China are on butter terms. In other words, China comes in and says, We want your oil, we want your bauxite, in return. We will build up, we will fix up your roads, we will build up your railways, et cetera, et cetera. It's strictly better. And it has happened in many, 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 many countries. I, I'm aware that, you know, not all African countries are the same. Not all of them have the same resources. And China is not looking for the same resources in each one of those countries. Zimbabwe, for example, has platinum. China wants it. Guinea has bauxite. China wants it. But the deals that have been signed, China, China won the deal in Guinea by building sports stadium in Guinea. 
In Zimbabwe, it built a presidential palace. So the tactics are the same. Deborah. Uh, you talk about African governments not having any input into these uh, bargains and these arrangements, as though it's all just being imposed on them and dictated by China. That's not the case in the countries I'm familiar with. What makes you, uh, do you have any evidence to back this up? Well, it's a very good question. But the thing is, the deals are signed in secret. And the deals are, again, on better terms. And the terms are dictated by China. China says, look, take a, take one perfect example is Nigeria. Nigeria's railway system is dilapidated. It's completely non-functional. Okay? Nigeria wants it fixed. China comes in and says, look, we're going to fix this radio, uh, railway system for you. We think it will cost us $5 billion to fix it. And in return for that, we want access to four oil blocks, and we think that the two are equivalent. Okay? Nigeria really doesn't have much choice and says, okay, yes, I'll go ahead. But the thing is, the way this deal has set up, the potential for graft, what, what happens if two years from now China comes around and says that, oh, we made a mistake. We thought this, uh, this uh, railway system fixing this, this cost would be $5 billion, but now we think it's $7 billion. Okay. Quickly, Debbie, do you want to come back? Uh, that case in Nigeria was actually quite interesting because this was uh, something that was dictated by the Nigerians to the Chinese. This was an arrangement that they proposed. They also proposed it to the Koreans. Uh, you can read about this in the Chatham House report, which looked into this in a great deal of, of detail. George, briefly? Yeah, first, you know, the, the Nigerians gave it to the Chinese, and this is what the Chinese told them. They, they said, we'll fix your railways if you give us access to four-hour blocks. Okay, the Nigerians had a choice to go to the uh, Koreans or to the Chinese. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Um, George will have a chance to say more later. And uh, now, our next speaker against the motion is Deborah Broutigam. Deborah is the Professor of International Development at the American University in Washington. And she's also the author of a book called The Dragon's Gift, which was one of the first and certainly one of the most quoted books on this subject of Chinese involvement in Africa. And I would say that she's been studying this for longer than most people realized it was an issue. So, Deborah, your 10 minutes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for this invitation to come and debate this motion. And let me start by saying that I agree with George Aite in one respect. Africa's not going to, China's not going to save Africa. And they would regard the very notion of saving Africa as most peculiar. What you've heard just now in a lot of uh, Mr. Aite's argumentum verbosum is the conventional wisdom. And uh, if I, all I knew about China and Africa was what I read in British newspapers, I'd be wor very worried as well. But fortunately, that's not the case. How often have you read that China is propping up pariah states with billions of dollars in concessional loans, or that China is leading the land grab in Africa, or that they bring in all their own workers, or that they dictate the terms of contracts, or that they're, uh, what else, that they're wiping out African manufacturing? Um, actually, none of this conventional wisdom happens to be true. Uh, so you can't rely on what you read in the newspapers for your evidence. Public opinion polls carried out by Afrobarometer in 20 African countries show that Africans broadly welcome the Chinese presence, and they rate them 70% positive.
positively. And this is very similar to what they give for Britain, Portugal, and France, which is about 72%. And actually, the United States won. We got 77% uh, in a popular approval in these polls. Now, Africans are continuing to welcome the Chinese, and for good reason. This emerging relationship is not without its problems, and some of them were pointed out by Mr. Aite. Like other developing countries, Chinese banks and Chinese companies have low social and environmental standards. And that's why, for example, China Exim Bank has brought in a Swiss company to help them with their environmental impact assessments. In some countries, Chinese traders are competing in the marketplace with African traders. In Ethiopia, this doesn't happen because the Ethiopian government checks up on business licenses and uh, import permits and uh, work permits, and they don't let it happen. And other countries are not so strict, and so it does happen. Counterfeits are a problem. And when I was in Tanzania, I talked to a Chinese pharmaceutical company that was fighting counterfeits of its own brand name products in uh, Tanzanian markets. But I think despite these real challenges, uh, China's role in Africa has been largely positive. And I'm going to make five main points about this. First is that China is an economic engine, is pulling Africa. And it may surprise you, especially after what you just heard, that the World Bank reports that Africa is largely on track to meet the Millennium Development Goal of reducing poverty by half. And they should meet this a little bit late by 2017. And China has been an important part of this. Uh, Poverty reduction is directly related to the economic growth rates that we've seen in Africa. There's an OECD study that found that for every one percentage rise in China's growth, 7.7 million people outside of China were lifted out of poverty. And they said that China may be, outside its borders, the most potent poverty reduction engine that we've seen in the 21st century. And my second point is about infrastructure. And you've already heard uh, how the infrastructure gap in Africa is quite profound. Now, to develop, Africa needs to reduce its high production costs. And this means better infrastructure. Um, The West, in general, has been funding things that are not infrastructure. They've been funding NGOs and the social sectors and health and microfinance, and these are all good things. Um, China's financing infrastructure, and these days it's more than $6 billion a year, and it's helping to fill this gap as having a positive impact. Uh, After Liberia's war ended, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf said that her main priority was financing roads. And the donors sat there and they said, we don't do roads. But the Chinese ambassador said, we'll do roads. And so the donors started to change. And I think we can see this happening around the continent now. In Angola, where Chinese banks have put in, at this point, $14.5 billion in infrastructure, the rate of absolute poverty dropped from 68% to 36% uh, over the past decade. Now, the conventional wisdom disparages the quality of this infrastructure. But the World Bank and the African Development Bank don't agree that Chinese companies are carrying out the majority of the road projects that they issue. There are two kinds of Chinese finance, and they're often conflated. Let me just explain this. Despite the conventional wisdom, China's official aid, the stadiums, hospitals, these kinds of things, they don't show any pattern of concentration in resource-rich countries. They're distributed across the continent. And the idea that China uses these kinds of things to get access to natural resources or pays for its natural resources with hospitals and stadiums is false. This may come from a misunderstanding about how these big packages operate. So let me explain briefly. 
In the late 1970s, when China was just emerging from the Cultural Revolution, they were already a major exporter of oil to Japan. And Japan came to them and said, we'll make you a bargain. We'll give you a line of credit worth $10 billion. And you can use that to import technologies from us. Our companies can help you develop your power plants and modernize your ports. And you can repay us with these existing oil exports that you already have. So China is offering the same kind of package, the same kind of bargain to many African countries. And that bargain is leverage what you're already exporting to us. If it's Congo Brazzaville, it's oil. If it's Ghana, it's cocoa. If it's Ethiopia, it's sesame. So use these to build the infrastructure that you want for your country's modernization. This is not a barter system. The loans are not concessional. It's not foreign aid. It's exports that go into an escrow account, and then they are used to secure and repay these loans. Infrastructure gets built, of course, largely by Chinese companies, although this is negotiable. Angola, for example, negotiated 30% of the loan should go to pay for Angolan firms to do their infrastructure. And despite popular belief, the evidence shows that in almost none of these cases is it linked to a Chinese company getting a concession. In fact, the Nigeria example that you just heard about, it was the Nigerians' idea that they would swap the access to those for uh, blocks for the infrastructure. And by the way, this all fell apart at the last elections in Nigeria. So the West simply imports raw materials from Africa and sends the cash back. We don't know what happens to it. But the Chinese have figured out a way to make this resource work for development. Now, the third point is that China is building up African manufacturing. And this is what Africa needs to move out of its poverty. Um, In many countries, Chinese imports have hurt African import substitution industries, particularly in the textile sector. This is very true. But if you look at the data, you'll see something interesting. Africa's deindustrialization happened in the 80s and 90s under structural adjustment. Industrialization sank. But in the last five years, between 2005 and 2009, manufacturing has increased by 5% per year on the continent, just as China is there engaging. And what's happening is that rising costs in China are pushing their factories offshore. Um, They're building up special economic zones in Africa to attract these companies to come and invest there. And China's allowing in duty-free access for more than 400 goods from Africa's poorest countries. And these, if you look at the list, which is on my blog, if you're interested, these are largely manufactured goods. And this provides another incentive for companies to move to Africa. And Africans are welcoming this. Last week, I was in Ethiopia in the Ministry of Industry, and I listened to an official tell me with great glee that he had just finalized this agreement uh, for a major Chinese company, the largest shoe manufacturer in Guangdong, to move to Ethiopia. And that company had already hired 100 Ethiopians and sent 49 of them to China for training before they opened their factory early next year. So when was the last time a British factory opened uh, a big, a British uh, company moved a big factory to Africa? The fourth um, point is that Chinese companies are expanding employment in Africa. This may be hard for you to believe. If we look to um, Libya, to Algeria, and to Angola, we do see large numbers of Chinese working there. And that's not surprising. These are areas that have large numbers of other foreigners working as well. In Angola, for example, there are 92,000 Portuguese, according to The Economist. But this is far from the norm for the Chinese. In the countries where I've looked, in most parts of Africa, it's 10 or 20% Chinese on any given project and about 80 or 90% African. Now, the reality is that Chinese mines and infrastructure projects and factories are employing Africans. Uh, And it's new employment. 
The problem is the terms of this employment and the standards under which it's being offered, the wages that are being paid, they're at Chinese standards, not European standards. Uh, this needs to be changed. It's understandable why they're like that. Um, my last point is on governance. It's widely believed that Chinese firms prefer to invest in pariah states where they can get better terms. Uh, this actually isn't the case. The evidence shows that Chinese firms are a lot like ours. They want to invest in stable, well-governed countries that, where they have secure property rights. That's why, for example, two countries, Australia and Canada, together have received more Chinese investment than almost the entire continent of sub-Saharan Africa. And why in Africa the top destination continues to be South Africa. Are the Chinese impeding democracy and governance in Africa? I don't see this. According to Freedom House, between uh, 20, 2000 and 2010, when China was ratcheting up its engagement there, uh, political and civil liberties showed no decline across the continent. More governments than ever have been voted into power recently and more peacefully. And even a poster child for corruption, like Angola. Governance and transparency have improved to the extent that the IMF now has a standby agreement with Angola. And recently, Standard & Poor's raised its credit rating for Angola at the same time that they were lowering ours. So um, let's look most, more closely at some of the cases in which the Chinese have been involved. Sudan. China did an about-face in Sudan. Yes, they did not play a constructive role. 2004, 5, 6, 7. But in 2008, they changed. Um, they persuaded Khartoum to accept a joint AU-African uh, Union and UN peacekeeping force. Um, and as Khartoum and Juba were negotiating the referendum that led to the independence of South Sudan earlier this year, Beijing's diplomats stayed very closely engaged to keep Khartoum on track. Uh, this was against their short-term interests because all the oil is in South Sudan and Khartoum is their pal. Uh, but they did this, and they even sent a monitoring team um, at the referendum. In 2007, when Sierra Leone's president lost the election and then didn't want to step down, a group of ambassadors went to meet with him to persuade him that he had to give up power, and the Chinese ambassador was in that group. It's interesting. In Guinea, after a military junta took power at the end of December, uh, pundits predicted that China would step in and prop up the junta so they could get exclusive access to Guinea's rich resources. This didn't happen. Guinea had an election which has been described as the most fair in their country's history after that. In Zambia, China has deep economic interests and, and real reason to be wary of Michael Sata, who just won the election because, because he campaigned on an anti-China platform. But when uh, Sata won the election earlier this year, there wasn't, uh, the Chinese didn't put any obstacle in the way of this. Uh, the transition happened. And President Sata's first meeting after the election was with the Chinese ambassador. So I think this shows some things. Africans know that when it comes to democracy and governance, the West is hypocritical. Uh, China is, as we hear, controlled by the Communist Party, it's non-democratic, it's authoritarian, it's repressive, it has human rights abuses in China, and yet the West has been lining up to trade and invest with China for decades. And they've done very well out of it. The Chinese have done very well out of it. 1.3 billion Chinese people have done very well on it, out of it. And yet Africans wonder why the West keeps warning them away from China. 
Now, remember again, the public opinion about China in Africa is broadly positive. Africans don't want to have to choose between China and the West, and they shouldn't have to. China is filling important roles in Africa, in infrastructure, in manufacturing. They're offering policy space so that Africans have a chance to make their own decisions about things. They're emphasizing mutual benefit, which is the basis on which they're operating there. It's not a bad recipe for development. It's not a bad recipe for a relationship. And it's something that we should let play out. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. Stay there. Don't move. Don't move. Anna, you are desperate to ask something. Yes, according to the African Development Bank, China imports, according to the statistics, they are known because much is not known, but it looks like China imports something like 34% of their imports from Angola, 20% from South Africa, 11% from Sudan, and 8% from the DRC, uh, mostly crude oil and minerals. Uh, one area where Africa has definitely a comparative advantage is, is food production, is agriculture. And uh, uh, China's high level of consumption of food, of food is also taking a toll in terms of uh, uh, elevating the prices for food. Why isn't Africa, if, 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 why isn't China important more agriculture for Africa and helping Africa develop its capacities in agriculture apart from the, the manufacturing effort you're, you just referred to? Thank you for asking that. They are, actually. Um, as you may know from the statistics, what China imports from Africa in the agricultural sector is largely cotton. That's the biggest thing. And so that goes into the textile industry in China. Uh, but they have set up um, 20 agrotechnology demonstration centers in 20 different countries. And I just heard in Ethiopia that they're going to expand that now to 30. So that's just one per country. And in Ethiopia, they've, they've had for more than uh, a decade, they've, had, they've sent Chinese experts to work in the agricultural technology vocational schools. And so they've been uh, having these teams of about 15 people every year that have gone. Um, they're not investing in large-scale agribusiness in Africa. That's not to say they're not interested in that. They're certainly going to places like Brazil, and they're looking at Argentina and, and Southeast Asia. They've also invested. But they don't actually find this to be very profitable in Africa right now. So what you find is where they have invested, they're investing for local production. In Zambia, for example, there are more than 25 Chinese farms. They all produce for the local market. It's controversial because their chickens are bigger than the Zambians' chickens, and people don't like that. But they are producing food in Africa for Africans. Okay, one more question from this side. Yeah, um, one of the things that I, I like to put to you is that um, many Africans speak from experience, and that is from our history. We have known that every foreign entity that goes to Africa goes there to pursue their interest. The Chinese are not in Africa because they love black people so much. Now, the, the, the question which I, uh, I would like to put to you is, uh, have you noticed that the investment in the infrastructure is strategic. That is, they want resources. Then obviously, they would like to develop the infrastructure, the roads, the railway system to take the resources out. Deborah. Yes, the Chinese want resources, but when you look at the infrastructure, there's not a relationship between the Chinese infrastructure and the resources. I know this is a myth that's often believed, but look at Angola. The Chinese have put in now $14.5 billion. The oil is offshore. 
this infrastructure is going all around the country. This is reconstruction. Uh, if you look at the DRC, the roads that they're building, they're all to link the DRC to its neighbors on the east. This is not about uh, channeling resources out. If you look at Ethiopia, there are 25 Chinese companies there building infrastructure. Ethiopia has almost nothing in the way of resources. So they're in there to make money. In fact, Chinese companies in 2009 signed contracts worth 40. $3 billion for infrastructure. And they're doing this for African governments who are, are commissioning this work, the World Bank, the Africa Development Bank. So it's, there are, of course, cases where there is a mine that needs the railway to the coast. But tell me where that's actually happened yet. Okay, hold that thought. Hold that thought. You can tell her later. Deborah. That's it. Um, our next speaker, who is for the motion saying Africa should not look to China, is Ana Maria Gomez. She's a Portuguese member of the European Parliament, a former diplomat. And on the European Parliament, she is part of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And she wrote a very important uh, report in 2008 called China's Policies and Their Effect in Africa. Anna. Well, thank you as well for inviting me for this uh, interesting debate. I, I have no doubt that... Uh, China's extraordinary growth, uh, its capacity to lift out of poverty millions of its own citizens, uh, becoming the, one of the largest exporters in manufacturing goods, uh, acquiring the tremendous financial power it has now, definitely made it an alternative source uh, for trade and finance to Africa and, uh, and uh, an alternative to the traditional development and trading partners of the Africans. And in many respects, this is to be welcomed, I believe. But, uh, uh, and I must say, actually, China, by doing that, uh, discovered markets in Africa at a time where many in Europe and in the U.S. were talking about Africa as the lost continent. And, uh, uh, and it brought, uh, definitely uh, made available to the people in Africa very interesting and empowering tools, such as cheap mobile phones. It's not neglectable in the uh, current era of globalization and of uh, where the world is a global village. But in my opinion, China is not and should not be a model for development for Africa. And that is because, um, indeed, despite all the talk by China presenting it, its uh, approach as win-win, uh, indeed, trade and foreign uh, uh, direct uh, investment of China in Africa has had uh, a, a negative impact in many respects. If you look at the economic impact, it might be globally impressive, uh, and, but when you disaggregate it per individual country, you see that the, the, the impact is diverse and often it's worrying. Deborah was just talking about uh, the impact in Angola with all this construction in infrastructure. Uh, most of that construction is very poor quality. Portuguese companies appreciate that because they actually are the ones who then have the maintenance contracts to follow on. Um, um, in, in Zambia, people talked about the 
the textile tsunami, the, the import of uh, Chinese cheap uh, clothes, manufactured goods, uh, killing the, 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 the production, the local production, and it's happening in other countries. Uh, of course, there's also this factor of the bringing laborers uh, uh, sometimes, I mean, there was a, 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 a Zambian a leader recently elected who talked about investors in, instead of investors. Uh, this is too extreme. In Angola, for instance, people have already coined the new word. They had the Portuguese word mulato for those who are mixed Port, uh, white and, 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 and Angolan. Uh, uh, now there is the word chilato, which I think it's a good thing that, that shows the acceptance for indeed uh, this uh, Chinese uh, um, breathing uh, input. But um, I think I think uh, that uh, what is indeed very worrying um, is that indeed we cannot really measure because there has been, as George said, very little transparency, not on the part only of the African countries for lack of uh, capacities and so on, lack of governance, but indeed on the Chinese side to publish it all so that we will know how things really operate. And for instance, a major important contract signed with the DRC, which has been uh, uh, subject to changes, uh, uh, it, it was about a, a contract of uh, um, uh, building infrastructure uh, for about 9 billion uh, China promised to the DRC in exchange from getting copper and cobalt um, to prices unknown, but something which was calculated by the World Bank to give China in return something like 100 billion. And it has been, thanks to the pressure of the IMF, who was obviously a lender to the DRC, uh, that uh, uh, there's been some publication, and there's a, a lot of work done by uh, international NGOs to bring out this data, showing that indeed this contact was extremely opaque uh, in indefinite terms, in, in, in terms that would be terribly detrimental to the development uh, of the DRC, uh, if not uh, totally exploitative. So I say that uh, indeed um, we cannot rely, Africa should not rely on, on China to uh, contribute to its, uh, uh, to the governance skills that indeed development requires. Uh, because in these, uh, uh, the way China has been operating in, uh, in Africa has dramatically increased inequality, corruption, um, siphoning off of funds uh, uh, for uh, offshores, uh, for uh, tax havens, much of the direct investment from China to Africa comes via offshores based in Hong Kong, Cayman Islands, and so on. And of course, they are indeed teaching the skills to many African leaderships to actually also siphon them off. Uh, and of course, this has also increased impunity for all sorts of abuses. And of course, I, I, I think that um, this has a lot to do with the fact that China itself is not a model of governance because there are tremendous problems of human rights and, uh, and uh, accountability in China itself. And this is not at all 
If you don't uh, um, invest in that in, uh, in developing countries, of course, you're not going to uh, have um, a, a, a smooth road towards um, capacity building in terms of governance. This is actually weakening the states uh, in African countries. Uh, 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 with all these uh, implications that I've mentioned to you. Uh, it's not just uh, about... Um, it's, it's about the rule of law. It's accountability, which is essential to actually fight corruption. It's about, about empowering civil societies. What have... What has, is there any accountability? I'd love to see it. Uh, when I produced this report in 2007 for the European Parliament, I had tremendous difficulty in collecting the data. Now it might be a little better, but it, it would be interesting to see how is, for instance, how can we measure the progress that China is making in terms of the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, in its action uh, uh, towards Africa. Um, uh, I I do not. Um, uh, I do not try to compare, and I don't want to say that the uh, aid system, uh, assistentialist, almost charity-based system, in which the West, including the EU, has based its approach towards development in Africa, is more efficient. It is not. And by the way, it has not been adhered to in practice by our own governments, despite the commitments. This is a point I make in, in the report as well. But definitely, at least that, 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 uh, that there, are, it's, there are criteria. There are clear objectives in terms of, um, of goals for development, the MDGs, which have been adopted at the uh, universal level in the framework of the UN. And by the way, China is a... a a particularly responsible member of the UN in the sense that it is a permanent member of the UN Security Council. So don't give us this, this talk about non-interference non -interference and, and, uh, and no strings attached in its policies because we all know about the Dalai Lama, uh, 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 the, the implications if uh, one government receives the Dalai Lama or doesn't receive it. Uh, of course, the implications regarding Taiwan, uh, Tibet, uh, it's China's own human rights, serious problems and accountability towards its own citizens. But more than that, I mean, human rights are a cornerstone of the UN. China is a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It's made a permanent member to actually interfere, interfere for human rights, interfere for peace and security and sustainable development. That's this, so don't give us this talk, uh, uh, Chinese uh, government uh, friends, that indeed this is, uh, they, that they have a non-policy, a policy of non-intervention. Can you wrap up? You're coming to the end. Of your and I'll just say that, uh, well, the, the, these days, it's not just, uh, uh, our African friends, uh, and I, 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 I support what George said, it's not about preventing China from doing trade and investment in Africa. It's actually about also building and helping the Africans build their own capacities to indeed be discerning in identifying their interests and in defending their interests, and not allowing, therefore, a policy to divide and rule, which has been also uh, deal uh, nationally with each country. This is applied to Africa, but I 
would say it should apply also to us. On my way here, I read the first page of the Financial Times uh, talking about uh, Chinese being welcome to come and build all the infra rebuild all the infrastructure in, in Britain. Well, in Europe, I mean, uh, the Europeans are in this terrible state uh, of uh, actually asking China to come and, and reinforce this so-called European Financial Stability Fund. And I think, so what I would say to our African friends is actually the same that I say to European friends. Beware of the dragon. You want the, the dragon that is firepower, it's going to be good. If it warms you, if it burns you and burns your house, you, you must be careful. Thank you very much. Right, I'm looking forward to the debate somewhere in Africa full of African academics telling us that we should or shouldn't beware the dragon. Um, questions? Anna, you mentioned that you think the, the Chinese are teaching skills to African leaders about corruption. Yes. I found that a bit of a stretch. <laughs> it might be going the other way around. Um, this venture in the DRC that you mentioned, uh, this $9 billion which has now been negotiated down to $6 billion, you say that this is all stacked in China's favor. I don't know how you can say that if you look at the contracts, which are now widely available, uh, to see it's 68% for the Chinese, 32% for the Congolese. They're not putting in a penny from the Congo, but they're getting 32% of this. This is a much bigger proportion than they've gotten with any other international mining contract in the DRC. So this is a good deal. Can you respond on that? Well, the question is, if you don't have a government in place who is able to actually identify what kind of roads, what kind of hospitals, where you're going, or the schools you're going to need, uh, if you're going to build roads in the middle of nowhere or schools in the middle of nowhere and then becoming white elephants, uh, you don't really make much use of all that money put there in the infrastructures in exchange for the um, iron or, or the, the, the copper and cobalt which are going to go away. And uh, uh, about the corruption, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to say that the Chinese have the exclusive. Indeed, um, very important is the transparency and indeed the, the fight against corruption and Europeans and, and, and the Westerners in general have a, a lot to do as well in this sense. But uh, clearly, uh, by uh, now making money available to uh, corrupt uh, often co very corrupt uh, governments. Uh, it is Chinese helping them perpetuate in power and actually uh, disempower the civil society, the women, the young people, the media. That would be crucial to uh, to exercise the uh, scrutiny of government policies. Thank you very much. We're slightly running over time, so Anna, I'm going to ask you to come and sit back down and make way for our final speaker, who is Stephen Chan, OBE who is a professor of international studies at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. I would say that he's probably best known for his work on Zimbabwe, but he has written 27 books and more than 200 scholarly articles, so I think he ranges fairly widely. And he was also involved in the Africa-China-US trilateral dialogue. Finally, he is also well known for being very good at karate, but I'm going to ask him to keep his attacks verbal, not physical tonight. Stephen. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you to the organizers. It's a great pleasure to be here. I should identify myself a bit more firmly at the beginning. 
I'm a member of the Chinese diaspora. Uh, I don't live on the mainland of China. Uh, but I've spent my life uh, working in Africa and living in Africa and advising governments in Africa and, in particular, advising liberation movements shortly about to become governments and, yes, very often about to become very corrupt governments. But let me start with a story of an encounter when I was doing some of this work in the very beginning of 1980 in what was about to become Zimbabwe as Zimbabwe was emerging from its war of liberation. And I was one of the peacekeepers at that point in time. I hasten to add I look very, very different in a flak jacket and with short hair and dark glasses on. But we're working at uh, lieutenant colonel level uh, so that whenever I would meet Robert Mugabe's lieutenant colonels, who were my liaison cohorts, uh, seeing that I was Chinese, they would pull out chopsticks and say, we want to eat with you in the way that we were taught by your countrymen, because in our hour of need, they came to help us. Ladies and gentlemen, the Chinese association with Africa is not something recent. It's not something to do with a recent explosion of corrupt relationships or anything like that. China has been around trying to help Africa become independent since the very beginning. And the amount of investment that China put into Africa for no return at all in the early Cold War days is something that we've politely glossed out of the situation. What we also politely gloss out of our recognition of today's situation is that we're prepared to paint China black, if I may be excused for using that term, simply because we also want to have access to the same resources that we accuse the Chinese of seeking to pillage. It's a competition. And what happens in the rhetoric that accompanies this competition? The rhetoric that accompanies this competition paints the Chinese black and it paints the African incapable of making right choices. It's absolutely a rerun of exactly the kind of colonial thinking that encouraged Africa to become weak and corrupt in the first instance, a fault which can be laid at our doors and not at the doors of the Chinese. I want to put a few things straight. There's a lot of wild talk that goes into all of this. And yes, the Chinese have their own interests at heart, certainly in the long term. They do want to supplant the West as the major power in the world. They're prepared to do that through, let us say, peaceful, competitive means. They're quite prepared to help us out of our debt burden. They're quite prepared to buy up our toxic debt, which we incurred by our own spending and banking habits in the first instance. They're quite prepared to buy into Europe in exactly the same way they've bought into America. And the reason for this is that if you look on a world map, Europe and America are much more important to the long-term Chinese future than Africa is. Africa is important because it will help fuel the Chinese coming of age, but it is not the absolute key end result of all Chinese global foreign policy. But what is going on, as you well know, is a global contest as to who is going to be in control of global capitalism 10, 20 years in the future. Will it still be the West? Is the West reluctant to make way for new players? Is that the key element of the game that we're being seen uh, played out? And do we make the Africans the four guys in something which is much more global? Let me say a few words about what Anna said about 
the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's not the case that the Chinese proposed $9 billion investment would have been white elephants. That would have opened up the entire south of Democratic Republic of Congo. The infrastructure that was going to be put in would have opened up and empowered an entire region, including the civil society of that region. What the Chinese were wanting to put in were several hundred kilometers of road, of railway, and here comes the important thing, building along that line of road and rail, schools, medical clinics, and wait for this, universities. When you look at the Western profile in terms of how we approach aid, it's curious how we leave out certain aspects there. We leave out universities. Africans only need to have primary and basic education. Do they not? But if you have worked in Africa as much as I have, and you talk to any parent of any family, what do you want to happen to your youngsters? We want them to grow up to be educated. We want them to go to university. If they can graduate from a university, it's a coming of age. We know then they'll be learned and they'll be able to be part of a generation that does not have to suffer as our generation suffered. What the Chinese recognize and what we don't in Africa is the nature of African aspiration. It's got nothing to do with denigration. We use that vocabulary. The Chinese vocabulary is one of aspiration. Now, having said all of that, let me be the first to admit the Chinese get it wrong on an awful number of occasions. But I want to take issue with George's grand generalizations. There's a public sector, as it were, involvement on the part of China, with public governmental involvement, uh, corporations which are largely governmentally or party-owned, and there's a whole host of private corporations and private investors. In particular, some of these private investors are out-and-out racist, and they are very, very much a disgrace to the image of China in Africa. It was against those people that Michael Sata, now the president of Zambia, and yes, a free election, so Africans can hold free elections, against such people that Michael Sata railed in recent election campaigns, not in the last one three months ago, which brought him to power. Yes, the Chinese get it wrong on a whole number of fronts. Certainly they were wrong in terms of sticking to the government in Khartoum for so long, particularly over Darfur. But, as we've heard, in 2008 they changed their attitude towards Darfur quite fundamentally and having been given credit for that. I was part of the negotiating push in Beijing for that to happen. And the amount of receptiveness that you can get out of the Chinese if you know how to talk their language, and by that I don't mean Chinese language, I mean the sort of language that treats them as equals, that treats them as players on the world scene, not simply as some nouveau riche recently arrived, why didn't you stay backward like you were meant to be so we could rule the world kind of dialogue, but a dialogue that says, okay, you've arrived, we'd better look to our own resources, we can't rest on our laurels anymore, how can we negotiate on equal terms? And the final point I would therefore wanted to make was about the negotiating strategies between China and Africa. This is not between the world's new wicked superpower and a bunch of ignorant natives who can't do it for themselves, yes. A huge number of these governments are corrupt, yes. A huge number of these governments are not democratic, no. Many of them will not be democratic or uncorrupt any time in the near future. And yet the growth rates in Africa are phenomenal. 
If Europe could accomplish one half of those growth rates, we would not be entering double-dip recession at this moment in time. If anybody cannot handle their public economies, it's us, not other parts of the world necessarily. When you are handling growth rates of that sort, are you doing it on the back of an envelope or do you actually have an idea what you are trying to do? I'm going to put it to you that African financial and economic growth is understood by African ministers of finance, by African politicians, and they know what it is that they are doing and what it is that they are trying to do, and they know how to negotiate. Let me give you just one example. We often labor uh, the relationship between Angola and China. Uh, Angola is meant to be corrupt. Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, It's meant to be a dictatorship. Uh, Well, it holds elections of sorts, but yes, it's a dictatorship. It has no real civil society. Uh, Well, it does of sorts, but the president's daughter controls it. Uh, It's a giant oligarchy, and at one point in time, uh, the national budget had no subheads, which is quite an extraordinary event, because, of course, what it meant was you had a national budget which could be used as a giant slush fund. It was the advent of the Chinese that changed that, because the Chinese said, if you want to be serious about what we're doing for you and developing your own resources so that you can be a powerful country in the future, not only in Africa but in the world, then you've actually got to be transparent, at least in terms of your own understanding of what your own governmental departments are doing. One of the ironic things in terms of all the rhetoric that has been flying around about China and Africa is how much more transparent and how much more, as it were, circumspect Angolan public accounting has become since the advent of China and its relationships with that country. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, I shouldn't uh, fail to remind you that just one week ago when we were contemplating yet another line of countries in Europe going bust because we could not handle our public finances, uh, the government of Angola kindly offered to bail out the Portuguese. (laughs) How the worm turns. We don't like it the least we could do is to refrain from what is essentially racist rhetoric against both the Chinese and Africa. Thank you. Stay where you are. On this side, Anna, I heard you say, no, that's not true. No, it's true, it's true. (laughs) And I'm very worried. By the way, the Portuguese government actually asked the Angolan government to help us bail out. It's quite worrying because I'm not so optimistic as you are in what concerns the evolution in terms of the transparency of the accounting. And what, by the way, do you have to say about this Queensway? Because it's not in a Queensway syndicate. It's not about just opacity of the accounts. It's opacity of the operators. Now, many of the Chinese operating operators in Africa, namely in Angola, are supposed to be private, but they actually hide uh, 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 interests, government interests, and they, in, including uh, uh, People's uh, Republic's army interests. And this Queensway syndicate is something really, really bad, bad for okay. Angola and for is it, uh, Maybe you should explain to the audience what the Queensway syndicate is. There are bad Chinese corporations just like there are bad American ones, and I can go through a long list of American mining companies who are busily plowing up Democratic Republic of Congo at this moment in time. The thing about China and what we often fail to understand is that our model of a multinational corporation is not necessarily the same model that other people use. 
the Chinese model of a multinational corporation, from their point of view, is something which is not entirely private. Uh, they're quite new at this game of modern global <coughs> private capitalism, uh, so that their corporations necessarily have a governmental or party, and in some cases, People's Liberation Army shareholding. And yes, some of them can be rapacious. There's no doubting that. Okay, um, I'm going to leave, leave that there because we are moving on on time, but you will have a chance to come back <coughs> in a few minutes. Um, before I open this debate up to you in the audience, let me tell you the result of the vote as you came in. For the motion, Beware the Dragon, Africa Should Not Look to China, 154. Against, 106. And 124 of you didn't have a clue, couldn't make your minds up, didn't know what was going on, and hopefully we'll come to some conclusion at the end of this debate. Um, what I'm going to do now is um, go... There are ushers in the audience who have microphones. I can see them both there. They will come round to you. Um, you should put your hands up and try and catch my eye. I will take two or three comments and questions at a time. Keep them brief. Um, people who rant, people who ramble will be dealt with um, with extreme severity. So, um, but we do want your contribution. So, go ahead. I can see a lady in red up there. If you wear red, you always get asked first because the chair can see you. That's the one, yes. Hello, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, I'm interested in Sudan. Uh, and you've said that things have changed greatly since 2008. Darfur is being bombed on an almost daily basis, and the conflict um, along the border with South Sudan has increased. How can you explain to me that China's helped that? Because I don't see it. Okay, thank you. Another question or point. Let's stay in the same area and go to this lady here, who I think is wearing a grey shawl. Thank you very much. Um, We've talked about Africa as if it was poor and China as if it was rich, but Africa is rich in natural resources, in social relationships, and China manages to live off the resources of many planets. My question is, if Africa can't look to China, where can it look for a better model of development? Right, and the last one in this little section, the gentleman here. Uh, Could I ask a question about the environmental impacts of China's involvement? There's a a tendency to say that the IMF and the World Bank would routinely include in their financing some sort of requirement for environmental good practice and that China typically doesn't. Uh, Could both teams please comment on whether they believe that's valid or not with examples? Thank you. With examples. Right, Uh, let's take those three. Um, Darfur still being bombed. Um, and a lot of trouble on the border between North and South. How on earth is China helping with that? Should I start then? Yes, please. Uh, the Sudan situation, both in Darfur and in many of the other parts of Sudan that are, are contentious, is very complicated. And the Chinese, of course, don't have control over the government in Khartoum. Um, what needs to happen in Darfur, and which has not happened yet, is there needs to be a peace treaty. And at this point, you've got uh, multiple actors amongst the rebels who have not come to the table uh, in order to negotiate a peace treaty. And so this is something that continues to make the situation hard to resolve. And so if you have a number of different actors who refuse to come, uh, then you've got the military option 
keeps getting kicked back. Uh, but I think the point is, isn't that the Chinese are providing the government with the excuse or the wherewithal to not have to deal with this issue. Is that not correct? In a very broad sense, one could argue this. The Chinese have invested in Sudan. Uh, they have a joint venture in the oil industry there. Uh, so does Malaysia. So does India. So there are a number of different actors there that provide, in a general sense, resources for the Sudanese government. If the Chinese were to leave, uh, the Indians and the Malaysians would still be there providing those resources. So in that sense, uh, one could argue that, it's, uh, that they're uh, providing the resources. But it's really it's the oil. And Sudan has the oil. The oil fields are developed. Uh, of course, this is uh, changing now with South Sudan. But um, the Chinese have less power in this kind of situation. And people who have looked carefully at the Sudan uh, issue and the Darfur issue say that um, the Chinese have been vilified on the basis of inflated expectations about what they could do in that complicated case. Okay, let's move over. Um, if Africa should not look to China, where should it look for a model? I don't know if George or Anna wants to... Yeah, well, sure. Africa has the resources. China has the capital. And where should Africa look? As I indicated, you know, uh, um, we like the infrastructure. We like, you know, the capacity to develop our resources. But um, Africa should be open to business to all uh, foreign uh, nations and uh, foreign firms. Okay, and because, see, because uh, for my own history. Uh, our own history has been one of exploitation and oppression. And so we've been very, very vigilant. Uh, we can't close off Africa completely. Okay? The Chinese are welcome to do business in Africa. The West, the Latin Americans are welcome to do business in Africa. But what we insist upon is that we want to make sure that the business deals benefit the people of Africa and not the corrupt ruling elites. As China has been propping up, you know, the corrupt elites in Sudan, in Zimbabwe, in Ethiopia, and so forth. That's what we object to. And that's why we're saying that the deals are not transparent. They're not opaque. It's full of corruption. If you look at Angola, for example, the Queen's Way Syndicate controls the oil exports to uh, China. And the thing is, you see, what well, what's Angola's- the model? I think the question is, the question is what is the model? If, if, if Africa should not look to China's model, should it be looking to the West? Well, the, you know, the, uh, Africa should be open to business to all people, but not exclusively to, uh, to China. And as I said, you know, uh, the solutions that we need for Africa are already there in Africa. And Africa should be open to be not to treat any particular, uh, any particular sector, you know, with favoritism, as our leaders have been doing. Thank you. Okay, now the environmental impact. I don't know if um, Anna. Yeah. I'd like just to say that Africa should actually do what it, uh, it uh, is part of the consensus that it, it is part of in the UN in terms of the MDGs. Empower African people. Empower African women. That's what the MDGs are also meant for. And let them, by education, indeed get the skills to indeed identify where are their interests and to empower their parliaments to actually exercise the proper scrutiny. And I'd like to touch on the question on the environment. Um, uh, when I talked about accountability and, and human rights, of course, this also it means uh, concerns with environmental impact, which is, with, have been absent uh, from uh, uh, Chinese projects, uh, concerns with public health, with uh, labor core rights. But if they are not taken into account in China itself, why should China 
take account of it elsewhere. Uh, we know that people in China are suffering from terrible uh, pollution of the water, of the air, and so on. So recently, the most affluent people from China said in a, in a survey that they all were considering living outside of China. And I guess it's also because of the freedoms that they cannot enjoy inside China. In a way, China is going to be a victim of its own success. In what concerns the way China operates abroad, and namely in Africa, I think China learns fast. The case of Sudan shows that. Uh, by the way, there is oil in South Sudan, so uh, a consulate has already been opened in South Sudan. And, um, and China will learn, that, and learns fast and learns that for the sustainability of its own interests, strategic interests in the long term, it cannot, uh, uh, it cannot continue to uh, act in a way that will be uh, uh, resented by the people in Africa. Let me so ask Stephen to come in on the environmental question. China's own environmental record is not great, is it? It's not great. But in fact, in Africa, very, very shortly, we're going to have... Uh, the Climate Summit in uh, Durban, which is meant to follow up on the non-agreements uh, in Oslo. And there I think you're going to see gathered representatives of the entire world community that's not getting its act together on the environment. So singling out single nations I don't think is profitable. I just wanted to make a brief comment about Darfur, if I might, because that is something which excites rightly a very great deal of passion. Uh, I was in China talking about this, and I went, first of all, to the People's Liberation Army to talk to them as a precaution. Can you send 100 helicopters to Darfur? And the PLA commander said, yes, we can. So that when I talked subsequently to the party and foreign ministry officials, and they said, no, we can't, I said, oh, yes, you can. Uh, but then, of course, they said, why should we, therefore? Because no one else is. And that's really the crux of it. Uh, the whole hybrid uh, United Nations African Union peacekeeping mission there I don't think the situation has improved very, very much to this day. But at the height of its operation, something which we supported, and don't forget Darfur is a country the size of Texas, uh, size of France in our European terms. General Aguay, who was commanding the peacekeeping forces, had two helicopters that we provided him. Uh, there's a lot more to blame than just China in this equation. Okay, let's take some more comments and questions. Um, there's a gentleman in the front here. Can I take this gentleman in the front, waving a piece of paper? Thank you. Uh, one of the most credible and damaging um, remarks made against China was that the infrastructure that they are installing is of very poor quality mm. and won't last and will have to be done, spent, I have a lot of time, um, having Portuguese engineers uh, putting it right. What can the speakers against the motion tell us to refute that? Okay, very good. And another one, um, shall we just go a little bit one behind? We're not going to forget you people at the back, but let's... Um, I feel like the whole debate has been based on the assumption that development is simply economic growth, mm -hmm. but if we consider development as an advancing of freedoms and equality and securing the safety of people and securing human rights of the nation, then how can China then help um, Africa to achieve this as opposed to purely economic growth, especially with China's own political structure and 
their lack of transparency in human rights abuses, etc. Yep, that's thank you. Um, at the back, we had yes. Um, thank you. My name is Issam Osman. I'm a member of the Sudanese diaspora in the UK, and I think uh, with all the discussion of the Sudan, I felt I had to say something already. I must say, I think some of the dialogue I found a little bit patronising about the Sudan and China's role in the Sudan. Um, probably many people don't know, but the oil in the Sudan was initially uh, developed and discovered by Chevron in the early 70s and belonged, and the rights to the oil belonged to the Americans. Those oil wells were kept capped while the Sudan was one of the poorest countries in the world. I remember going to university and having to queue up for fuel 48 hours every week to get four gallons of petrol. I've since returned to Khartoum a few years ago, and a litre of petrol there is cheaper than it is in Ipswich, where I live now. Um, I think the issue of the South, were it not for Chinese investment to bring the oil out and lead to a growth in the Sudanese GDP, the Americans would never have been interested in ending the war in the South. Colin Powell and others would not have gone to Naivasha and ended a war that went on for 50 years almost because they were concerned that the resources in the Sudan were going elsewhere. In a perverse way, Chinese investment led to democracy and the people of the South achieving self-rule. Thank you very much. I'm going to take one more. Um, let's take this gentleman down here at the front. Um, hi, I have a question. Basically, um, I think the main problem for me is that China's employment standards in Africa are frankly okay. abysmal. Um, how do you go around basically changing a culture which is what the Chinese economy is fundamentally based on and was built on? Okay. Um, I'm going to take that one together with the infrastructure. Um, I think these are mainly challenges for your side. The infrastructure is of poor quality and so are the employment standards. Stephen. Well, I can make a comment on that and uh, coming on the question of roads, which I think is what most people talk about when they talk about uh, poor quality infrastructure. Uh, what you've got in terms of the foreign aid uh, protocols of almost every single donor country, uh, let us say certain off-the-shelf solutions and how to do things technologically, so that when you have Swedish roads, for instance, built in Africa, they're built according to a Swedish format that will take 10 tonnes of snow falling upon them, and so they crack underneath the African uh, conditions for obvious reasons. Uh, the Chinese have a slightly more sophisticated protocol in terms of their engineering, but it's still off the shelf, so that some of their infrastructure in some parts of Africa would be perfectly suited for the environmental, um, as it were, the environmental factors that they would have to serve and not be so suitable uh, in other parts. Now, having said that, it's very, very difficult to build roads in the sorts of tropical climates that you've got in Angola in particular, uh, that's a particular area that has, I think, uh, been superior to almost everybody's uh, ideas about how to build a proper infrastructure. Chinese do learn from their mistakes. Uh, I think their railways are better than what we can do. Uh, their infrastructure in terms of civil engineering projects to do with buildings, sports stadiums, and opera houses. Uh, yeah, a lot of opera houses in Africa. Um, people go to them. Uh, are absolutely superb. Uh, and the big development I'm going there. to ask you to... Yeah. I think, can we, Deborah, do you want to say something quickly about um, mm. labour standards? Mm. Maybe labour standards and human rights at the same time, because I think that's another very mm. important question which just came up. Mm. Um, the Chinese, you've talked about the economy. Mm. Freedom, human rights, okay. all those other good things? Uh, let me try to address both of those uh, together, in a way. 
I think China uh, provides at home an example of, of one particular development model, which is building up the economy first and then political development later. This is the Asian model. This is what we saw in Korea. This is what we saw in Taiwan, even Japan. It's economic development first and political freedoms later. Uh, we don't know yet whether or not that's going to happen in China, but it's already democratizing at the grassroots with elections at the village and the township mm -hmm. level. So we see political change going on, much more institutionalization um, of the, the party changeover as well. So this kind of model is what China does. There are other things that we think work better, perhaps getting democracy first and then developing the economy later. What China's engagement in Africa is offering is opportunities for Africans to decide these things themselves. Uh, with the, the focus on university scholarships, 5,500 Africans are being educated every year in Chinese universities. They're getting the skills to go home and then work for their own development there. Okay, I'm going to cut you off there because we're running out of time. I'm not going to put it to you this side because we know what you think on these issues. I'm going to take a couple more questions and then we're going to be moving towards our vote. Yes, yeah, so at the back... Since, uh, since you have a, a limitation on natural resources, what happens when a, an autocratic or uh, corrupt government gives way to a democratically elected government and that government decides to renegotiate? Uh, what, what happens then? How reversible are these deals? How reversible are the deals? Um, yes, down here, lady here. Can you speak up a little bit? Can you hear me now? Yes, that was good. Okay, excellent. Um, it's in relation to the unfair linkages that keep coming up um, regards to the um, conditions that are placed, regards to the aid and trade and what have you. Now, what is causing Africa not to present such a stronger stance having experienced what they had previously with the rest, with the West in regards to um, the unfair trade negotiations. Um, George, you mentioned the unfair linkages quite yep. regularly um, in your responses. And I just want to know, what do you think is preventing the African gov government governments in um, putting forth such a stronger stance um, Okay, thank you. I think that's good. Um, another one down here. There's two. There's a lady in the front row, just there. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Yes, speak directly into the microphone. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say as well, sort of um, linked back to what the lady just said mm. over there. In terms of um, relating back to what George said, the actual problems that are preventing any possible unfairness in any negotiations of contracts between Africans and China is linked back to, I think a basis of corruption and poor accountability of government to people. So all this talk mainly of, yeah, well, Africans are happy about it and, you know, it's about the economic development of Africa and GDP talk is all well and good. But if you've forgotten what's underneath, I think that is a problem in itself. So to say that we're looking to, you know, a Chinese model of development, I don't mm. think necessarily can be flatly applied to Africa. As you just said, you don't even know if it works. So why should Africa be forced, or not be forced, be encouraged yeah, important, to important that. move to okay. that model? Thank you very much. And um, we're running out of time, but I'm going to take this gentleman anyway. It's, um... Good evening. Are there controversies of China's foreign direct investment in Africa 
any more distasteful than the US or Europe's investment in the Middle East since the discovery of oil there. Yep. Thank you. That's very good. I'm going to put um, to this side two things there. Why are African governments not asserting themselves to make good deals? That was the question from there. George, will you take that one? Well, uh, I think uh, somebody asked whether, you know, uh, about the possibility of renegotiating the deals uh, when there is a democratic government uh, in power. Uh, let me assure you that many of these deals will be repudiated by new governments. Because, you see, the deals were signed in secret, in secrecy, without the consent of the African people. There is a certain principle called odious debt principle, okay? And that is, if you, sign, if you, if you enter into a contract with, a, uh, with an autocratic government, without the consent of the people, the people can repudiate that particular contract, okay? So that's number one. Number two, China is not a model. It doesn't have the democratic model for Africa to emulate. Even if you look at the economic model itself, okay? Now, there's no question that China has implemented uh, economic uh, reforms, you know, since 1970, since Adam, uh, the um, uh, Mao Zedong. And those reforms have worked well, and that's why China is growing. But economic liberalization leads to political, uh, economic prosperity, which eventually hits a political ceiling. If you don't open up the political space, Okay, the whole thing will unravel. This is what happened. But is it any worse, as the gentleman in the front, any worse than what the Americans, the Europeans have done since the discovery of oil in the Middle East? Well, you know, this is, we've we've tried that model, state capitalism model in Africa. It didn't work. Uh, Remember, Ivory Coast used to be called an economic miracle of Africa. What happened? It imploded. Tunisia used to be an economic miracle. Madagascar happened to be an economic miracle. They all imploded. China's model is not the one that we should emulate in Africa. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm not going to let you come up. I'm going to turn and put the, to this side because we are otherwise going to run out of, of, of time. Poor accountability. Let me just address the question. Is this on? Yeah. The, the question of these deals. There's a widespread assumption in this room, and as well as on, on the right here, that um, notice we're on the left, they're on the right. Um, that these deals are bad deals, but they're not bad deals. If you look at the deals, at the details of these contracts, these are good deals. Look at the contract in okay, Niger. I'm going to leave you that. You say that they're good deals. They're good deals, and they've also been reviewed in Ghana and the DRC by the parliaments and passed. Okay. Now, the ushers are going to come round with ballot boxes, and so this is the moment when you have to decide. You have to take your voting slips out and tear them in half and decide whether you're for or against and put the whole thing in if you really can't make your mind up. But we definitely don't want the don't knows to win. Okay, as you're doing that, in silence... Yes. Now, in silence, don't discuss with your neighbour how you're going to vote. Your vote, as they always say in Zimbabwe, my vote is my secret. Um... Our panellists are going to briefly sum up in three minutes. And we're going to go in reverse order, and they're going to stay sitting where they are. So, Stephen, starting now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's been an impassioned debate, and I've certainly enjoyed it uh, myself. Listen, there are certain ironies as well as tragedies as well as great benefits in the whole African equation. 
And I don't think it's very, very helpful to lumber any one country or any one group of countries with either all the blame or all the benefit in terms of what's happened. In the end, George is completely correct. Africa is going to have to do it for itself. But having said that, Africa can do it for itself on the basis of its own choices. What upsets me is that we seem to be dictating to them whether or not they're making wise choices in dealing with the Chinese or dealing with the Russians or dealing with the Indians. There are lots of elephants in this room. It's not just the Chinese. Part of growing up is learning how to negotiate, learning from your mistakes, and not being patronized. And I think with that kind of open mind, we should trust Africa to go ahead in terms of its relations with anybody. Thank you. Anna, can you sum up for your side? Well, I come from the left, and uh, although I'm sitting here at the right, I'm from the left, and I am from the left who fought colonialism, who fought colonialism in my own country, was a colonial power. So uh, my left is the left of human rights, the left of democracy, the left of the rule of law. That is essential for sustainable development. So I do not accept to, and I do not condone any practices be the, by, by, by Europeans, Americans, Chinese, or Africans that are actually violating essential universal principles. I do not offer apologies for the colonial behavior and uh, unfair behavior, even in terms of not uh, uh, living up to the commitments in terms of development assistance by the Europeans and the Americans, all the mistakes done in Sudan, in Somalia, in Ethiopia, in many other places. Uh, Today... Uh, actually, we are in uh, the day before um, a very important meeting started in, in, in Busan, in, in Korea, to gathering everybody, including China, including African uh, governments, to try to find out common criteria in terms of making development aid work and be measurable and be transparent. And I think this is what we need. And uh, the one other element is to make understand that when we deal with China and Africa, we're not just dealing with governments, we're dealing with societies, with people. Addressing the needs of people is the crucial question. Empowering them is the crucial question. The women, the youth, they are the ones who are making the, the Arab Spring war, showing all these hopes. And I agree with what was said by George that indeed at some point in China as well, we are already watching that. See how Ai Weiwei and the other people came out defying, challenging the, the, the regime in China. So I believe that uh, uh, we need to... Uh, make China understand that it's in its long-term strategic interest to indeed come to these criteria that will indeed enable some development uh, out of uh, its practices in Africa and elsewhere. And we need to do it uh, as, uh, at home as well, because the scramble for Africa we've been talking about in the last years, it's now turning the scramble for Europe. Everything is cheap available to Chinese sovereign funds, very opaque. We need absolutely, we Europeans as well, together with Africans and the Chinese, to call for transparency, accountability, scrutiny, closure or uh, control of these offshores, these tax havens where the, uh, the, the holes where the so much wealth from Africa and from Europe are uh, diverted from our uh, well-being. Thank you very much. Deborah. Aid did not develop China, and aid is not going to develop Africa. 
Africa is going to make its own way out of the basis of its own productive activities. It's going to have to figure out how to get its own revenues so it can make its own decisions, yet so the countries there can make their own decisions uh, about what they want to do with their people. And the Chinese are offering a better opportunity, frankly, than most countries in the West are right now for that to happen. They're going into productive activities. They're building up infrastructure. They're enabling African governments to finally get the revenues that they can uh, use to make their own decisions instead of relying on aid. And China's listening better than we are. When Africans say that they want university scholarships, the Chinese are providing that. When they say they want to build universities, the Chinese are building them. When they say they want infrastructure, the Chinese say, okay, we're there. Uh, productive activities. This is what they're doing. They're investing. They're going into manufacturing. And finally, China is changing very rapidly. If your ideas about what China's doing in Africa date from 2006 or 2007, they're already out of date. Look at the environment. Look at the environmental impact assessments that they're doing for their projects. Look at the ISO 9000 uh, standards that they're hoping to achieve in these um, overseas special economic zones. Things are not the same. It's not the same China that we saw five years ago. And George. Um, uh, thank you very much for uh, this wonderful opportunity to debate this topic. And, um, and uh, you know, I come from a different perspective, and that perspective is I, I want to see Ubuntu institutes built in Africa, not Confucius institutes, okay? And uh, also I'd like to make a certain fact plain, and that is, See, Western companies wouldn't get away with what the Chinese companies are doing in Africa. You know, I mean, uh, if it had been Western companies uh, doing business in Sudan or even in Angola or with the Queensway Institute, for example, there will have been a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, noise about this and there will have been campaign against these Western companies. But you can't do that with Chinese companies because they are government-controlled or government-owned. But in a way, I don't put too much blame on the Chinese companies. I blame the blame. I put the blame on our leaders. Okay, the leadership simply has simply uh, sort of failed the African people. Uh, many of them are corrupt. Many of them uh, have no accountability. They are people. They are not elected. And look, there is a saying, and that saying is nobody can exploit you without your own consent. And if China is getting away with murder in Africa, it's because our leaders have uh, sort of uh, made it possible for them to do so. And that's why we're going to change uh, many of the leaders in Africa. And I wrote a book about this, and that is Defeat ha! Dictator. Now you get the promotion for the book. I knew he'd slip that in. I knew that would happen. The ushers are at the moment feverishly counting your votes. And so in that moment, I shall abuse my position in the chair to ask the questions I want to ask. And I, George... I want to ask you, what on earth is wrong with the Confucius Institute? It's great if people learn Chinese. <laughs> Everybody should learn Chinese. You, you have to accept well, that China is this growing power. Surely that has Confu to be a good thing. Confucius is as African as Marx and Lenin. Yes, but we have Confucius Institutes here. We should all be learning Chinese, shouldn't we? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yes. yes. Look, we build, you know, uh, the statues of Marx and Lenin. Okay, in Ethiopia, in Cotonou, in Benin, for example. And I mean, look, uh, it, this is not something that you should impose upon Africa. One of the reasons why things went so wrong is because, you know, we were forced to imbibe all these foreign ideas which we didn't understand. Okay. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask on this side is the infrastructure question, which we, we've mentioned a lot. 
Is one of the reasons why China is building so much infrastructure is because it doesn't have the bad experience that European countries have had in building infrastructure in Africa, which is basically that it is not maintained. And is the Chinese development that we're seeing, is it, has it got maintenance contracts built into it? Will it last? The Chinese would like to do maintenance contracts. And in fact, in Ethiopia, they're building a toll road um, in which a Chinese company will run the toll road until they've repaid the loan to build the road. So in that sense, they're, they're willing to step up to the plate uh, and do the maintenance if African governments aren't willing to do it. Um, but they're doing infrastructure for two reasons. One is simply pecuniary. They have construction companies that are already there. They're bidding on these contracts, and 89% of the contracts they're getting are through bidding. Um, and they're making a lot of money from that. But the other is because they believe that if you want to rise out of poverty, you first build a road. That's a, a common saying in China, Ya Shang Fu, Xian Shou Lu. And so that's how they look at Africa. Boy, a lot of roads need to be built here. Okay, I can see somebody is hovering on the edge of the stage with the vote. So here we are. I feel like I'm sort of doing the Eurovision Song Contest or something. Aha. Uh-huh. So before the debate, 154 were for the motion. Now that's gone down, 149 are for the motion. Against the motion before, 106. Now, 212. And only 25 people are undecided. So... The motion has gone against. There has been a change around. More of you are convinced by the argument and no longer believe that you have to beware the dragon. But as Anna said, the dragon's coming here anyway. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.